0: Podcast One production. In 2008 in Australia, a newly elected progressive government announced they were considering setting up a paid parental leave scheme. I had just fallen pregnant, so it was pretty front of mind for me. I was working in the union movement and I was in charge of the state's Women's Committee. It didn't take long for me to suggest, hey, we should call for six months paid maternity leave. My boss thought it was a great idea, but some in the union movement didn't like it. The loudest opposition came from an older group of feminists who’d been fighting for paid maternity leave for decades and thought I was an upstart who was hopelessly naive. They lobbied strongly to try and have our demand fall into line and ask for a mere 14 weeks. I was angry. We had a new government and a strong movement. Why would we lead with such a minimal demand? Ever heard of the Ambit claim? Rwanda had 14 weeks paid parental leave. Couldn't a rich country like Australia do a little better? So we battled it out. In my home state, a strong consensus grew around six months. A commission of inquiry was charged with making the final decision. In the end, it declared 18 weeks paid parental leave. I remember it because I was on maternity leave with my tiny little baby snuggling on a couch. And I cried. Although, that might have just been the hormones. It wasn't six months... But it wasn't 14 weeks. By breaking the rule that says defer to your elders, we had won an extra month to spend with our babies. We had been ambitious, but also recognised that winning was key. And as mums, we knew personally exactly what it would mean to win, because it was our lives that would change. This is the powerful mix that can come when women lead a fight. It's these lessons that lie at the centre of our stories today. Welcome to Changemakers, supported by our launch partner Mobilisation Lab. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Let's go.
1: Um, One final question. Do you think that guns have any place in or around
0: schools? That's Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut in the United States. He's questioning Betsy DeVos, the billionaire businesswoman, at her confirmation hearing to become education secretary. Uh, I think that's best left to locales and states to decide.
2: You can't
1: say definitively today that guns shouldn't be in schools.
0: Hear the exasperation in the senator's voice the woman who is about to be put in charge of all the schools in America refuses to say guns have no place there. This is the story of how pure exasperation has spawned a campaign against gun violence that breaks most of the rules of organising. And the reason why it's working is not just about who they're fighting, but who is doing the fighting. On a cold day in 2013, an 18-year-old teenager dressed in black jeans and a black hoodie entered Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Jennifer Hoppy was at her home in Washington, D.C., hundreds of kilometres south.
2: You know, it's like one of those moments you never forget. It was a Friday. I was working from home because I was actually scheduled to go to my daughter's school and give a presentation to her kindergarten class. And I had the TV on in the background, and I started hearing reports of a shooting at a school.
3: This is CNN Breaking News. It is just coming across the wires here, uh, reading straight from a Police responding to reports of a shooting, we're told, at Newtown Elementary School. Uh, this morning, it's in the southwestern part of Connecticut. There is a map right there, Sandy Hook.
2: Part of the sad reality of living in the United States is that didn't really register with me when I heard shooting at a school. And as the news started to trickle in, oh, there may be some casualties, there may be some children, and it just started getting worse and worse. And I was walking out the door and just about to shut off the TV, and I had my hand on the doorknob, and I heard it's confirmed that 20 children were killed in that school,
0: 20 children and seven adults.
2: And it's hard, you know, when I say that out loud, it makes me tear up all over again. So then I went to my daughter's kindergarten classroom and I was in front of 20, 21, five-year-olds and it was, it was very shocking.
0: Did you feel powerless?
2: I did, I felt like I didn't know what to do and I felt like I had to do something though.
0: In any other country in the world, a tragedy of that scale would have led to changes to the law. But we all know America is not just any country. Instead, it has this.
3: To the ayatollahs of Iran and every terrorist you enabled, listen up. You might have met our fresh-faced flower child president and his Ivy League friends, but you haven't met America. You haven't met the heartland. No, you've never met America, and you ought to pray you never do. I'm the National Rifle Association of America, and I'm freedom's safest place.
0: The NRA is a genuine kingmaker in the Republican Party. It wields its power in two ways. It throws around cash to support pro-gun politicians and oppose anyone who dares to believe in any form of gun control. It can afford to do this because it's primarily funded by gun makers. They oppose any and every restriction on gun ownership.
2: The NRA, um, the leadership of the NRA, I should say, is absolutely, completely out of the mainstream, not just of the American population, but of their own members.
0: So this awful, awful tragedy at Sandy Hook happened on a Friday. The following Monday?
2: I literally was having trouble sending my daughter to school in the morning, There was a police car outside of their school and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do something.
0: Jennifer wanted to do something, anything, but what?
2: As that initial shock kind of started to wear off, I thought this cannot be the reality that I raise my children in. And if I don't do something now, the next time it happens, I'm complicit in that
0: tragedy. Shannon Watts was a mother of five who lived near Sandy Hook Elementary and found herself in the same situation. So she went online trying to find a group that she could join to channel her energy. In the 1980s and 1990s, there had been a group called Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which had successfully lobbied for tighter laws on drink driving. She
2: was looking for the equivalent of that for gun violence prevention. And she didn't find anything, so she started a Facebook page.
0: Originally, she called it One Million Mums for Gun Control. It was an ambitious goal to hold a rally of one million mums. Think about that. Her initial instinct was to call for mums to take action. This wasn't about raising awareness or signing up to voice passive support. It was a call to do something, anything. It resonated with how Jennifer was feeling.
4: This
2: feeling was replicated all across the country, primarily mums and women just really wanting to do something.
0: Within weeks, the Facebook page had thousands of likes. The thing that united everyone was the desire to take action. One of the people who joined the mums in the early days was Lucy McBath. Just months before, she'd had a series of conversations with her teenage son about gun violence. I remember specifically the day that we had the first discussion about it. We were in my
4: bedroom and I remember just kind of listening to him ask these questions and I was looking out the window, trying to figure out how do I explain to my child that as a young black male, that, you know, there are many people in this country that won't hold any value towards him and his life
0: and his being. They talked about the case of Trayvon Martin, an African-American kid who was shot and killed. His killer, George Zimmerman, was acquitted of all charges. And I remember Jordan saying, Mom,
4: that's not going to happen to me. You know, that 16-year-old bravado. I can take care of myself.
0: That's not going to happen to me. What happened to Trayvon won't, won't happen to me. In late November, just weeks before Sandy Hook, Lucy was visiting her relatives in Chicago for Thanksgiving. Her son Jordan was at his dad's house in Florida.
4: Something just possessed me to go upstairs into the bedroom. I didn't really have any reason to go up there, but I just, you know, felt led to go up to the bedroom. I went up to the bedroom and I saw on the dresser, I saw, you know, my phone with Jordan's father's picture popped up and I I picked up the phone. I said, hey, Ron, how are you doing? What's what's going on? Happy Thanksgiving. And he said, you know, where are you? And I said, I'm I'm here at Terry and Earl's house in Chicago. He's like, well, where are you? And I said, I'm in the bedroom. Why? He said, go get Earl. And Earl is my cousin. And I said, Earl is downstairs. Why do I need to go get Earl? Where's Jordan? And there was just this deathly silence on the other end of the phone. And I yelled, I said, where's Jordan? And he said, Jordan's in the hospital and I said, what do you mean Jordan's in the hospital? Is he okay? What's wrong with Jordan? And he said, you know, Jordan's been shot and I just This primal Scream from within my very core and my heart just came wailing out because at that moment I was just completely
0: undone Lucy's son was shot in a dispute over the volume of the music he was playing in his car. And then when I found out that he was shot, you know, for
4: playing loud music in the car, I just couldn't comprehend how that could be. But I understood immediately, as Jordan's father
0: did, that it wasn't really about the music. It was really about the implicit bias and the racism. So when the mums held a rally in her city, it was like a calling.
4: I didn't know much anything about moms. I didn't know anything at all other than the fact that I was hurt and I was not going to keep quiet about Jordan being gunned down
0: the way that he was. The problem for Lucy and Jennifer and Shannon and all the mums who'd liked the Facebook page was they weren't seasoned activists. They didn't have a game plan. Shannon had set up the page with the idea of organising a rally but it was becoming clear that this was much bigger than that. So she decided to hold some events to allow people who were active on the Facebook page to meet face-to-face.
2: Late January, there was a march across the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City that hundreds and hundreds of people attended. And then about a week to 10 days later, there was another march in Washington, D.C. that Shannon Watts participated in. I came out, a lot of other folks came out. It was the first time I met Shannon in person and um, just got involved from there.
0: That's when Jennifer got involved. Shannon had the idea that everyone would commit to doing 15 hours of work a week to build the movement. In reality, it quickly became much more than that. They also decided to change the name to Mums Demand Action.
2: It was poorly branded.
0: By the way, Jennifer worked in marketing
2: but very quickly we changed the name to Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America because that's really what we are doing. We're not
0: going away. So in a sense, the group decided that a 1 million mums rally was not ambitious enough. It wasn't just about a rally. They were building a permanent standing counterweight against the NRA, an organisation that mums could search online and join so they could do something, anything they were for gun control, though there were anything but extreme about it.
2: We essentially coined the term gun sense because we support the Second Amendment. It's part of our Constitution. It's part of our culture. And we have many, many members who are gun owners.
0: What do you think of guns?
2: I support a responsible American's right to have a gun if they are law-abiding, if they are responsible if they secure it in their home and keep it inaccessible to children. And have
0: you ever owned one?
2: I have not owned a gun. My husband, however, is a gun owner. He um, was a recreational shooter for a while and still does own guns.
0: I'm going to take a break from this story for a moment because while we were doing post-production, the mass shooting in Las Vegas happened. 58 people killed by a man shooting from a room high up in a casino hotel. While I understand why pragmatically, given where America is at, it might make sense for Mums Demand Action to endorse the Second Amendment, it makes no sense to me. In doing this show, one of the things that has struck me is that often it's the game changer demands, the ones that seem deeply unpragmatic, but which actually contain a genuine solution that end up being the most effective. I get why Mums Demand Action and so many other moderate groups say they respect the Second Amendment... It makes them look moderate and sensible in the face of the extremism of the NRA. But as an outsider, it doesn't feel like much of a solution. And in politics, if you're just tinkering at the edges and don't provide an actual new way of reconceiving a whole problem, then you'll forever be playing in your opponent's court and constantly reacting to their agenda. Anyway, let's get back to it. So Mums Demand Action wanted to be a permanent fixture and they wanted to do something about guns in America. But what?
2: They saw the Facebook page and signed on and then there began this really amazing conversation about, well, what
0: should we do? What can we do? That's Deborah Rosen, a campaign professional from Washington, D.C. Should we try to pass a law? Should we try to have a march on Washington? What does change? What does success look like for us? The problem that Shannon Watts faced was that she was not a campaign professional. She was an accidental activist. She had no idea what to do. So she took the system at face value when seasoned professionals might have been a little more sceptical.
2: Shannon and some other early leaders with the group organized a lobbying day on Capitol Hill where anyone could come and lobby their
0: members of Congress. Basically, they put out a call on Facebook saying, come on down to Washington, D.C. and chat to your members of Congress.
2: We had no funding at the time, no financial support, and all of these moms took it upon themselves to come and talk to their members of Congress and say, you know, we're the mothers of America and we are not going to take this anymore.
0: Jennifer lived nearby.
2: It was easy enough for me to drive 20 minutes and come to that. But there were hundreds of mothers who flew into D.C. from across the country on
0: their own dime. Their idea was that they'd pick the lowest hanging fruit, a change that had wide community support.
2: It's a very common sense measure that is supported by over 90% of the population and even 74% of members of the National Rifle Association.
0: The idea was to close off a loophole that allowed people to get around the criminal background check required to buy a gun.
2: In a variety of circumstances, in certain states, people to buy a gun and carry it, no questions asked.
0: So, for a few days in March, instead of just holding another rally, hundreds of mothers booked in meetings and had face-to-face discussions with their representatives. The result was a bill presented to the Senate.
2: So it was a bipartisan bill, very uncontroversial.
0: The Mansion Toomey bill. Joe Manchin was a Democrat from West Virginia, Pat Toomey a Republican from Pennsylvania. The result? Although it got more than 50% of the votes in the Senate, it didn't reach the 60% needed to prevent pro-gun senators from mounting a filibuster. The bill failed.
2: It was a really extraordinarily disappointing defeat But at the same time, it was also extraordinarily motivating because people, moms, the moms of America got incredibly outraged.
0: Remember, this is just months after Sandy Hook and the US Senate couldn't even pass a measure that 90% of the population agreed with. So if politicians weren't listening to ordinary voters, who were they listening to? The NRA. Its lobbying clout made changing gun laws virtually impossible.
2: It very much felt like any change at the national congressional level, any change in terms of national legislation, was going to be really, really tough.
0: But the mothers were not so easily deterred.
2: So defaulting to, oh, we have a broken system, or there's nothing we can do, that's a recipe for not getting anything accomplished. And I think you can look over the course of American history, and these things take time.
0: No biggie. They just realised they needed to take on the entire gun lobby, including the formidable NRA. Whereas hundreds of other gun control groups had given up at this hurdle, Mums Demand Action simply saw their loss as a lesson that they had to become more powerful and change tactics. It was almost as if not knowing how the script usually plays out was an advantage. They didn't know that the conventional thing to do at this point was to stop.
2: Through that defeat, we actually became even more galvanised and have grown exponentially ever since.
0: But how do you take on the gun lobby in America? First, they got commitments. Mothers from around America all committed to spending 15 hours a week working on the campaign. And as mums, they had a very specific, child-focused way of articulating their frustration.
2: At the time, I had a baby, and we would take our babies and our children to Congress. we call them stroller jams. We'd bring our babies in their strollers, and, um, you know, our objective is very simple and pure, and that is to protect the lives of our children and all American children. It's pretty powerful.
0: Instead of just targeting Washington, D.C. and getting nowhere, they decided that any improvement anywhere in America was better than nothing. They had Facebook followers in all 50 states. Why not use them? And why not go for a broader set of targets?
2: They targeted several businesses that they thought would be
0: amenable to having a policy on not allowing guns in their business. They may not be familiar with the halls of Congress, but most mums need a caffeine wake-up. So their first target? Starbucks.
2: So there had been this kind of steady trickle of people openly carrying guns inside Starbucks no one's allowed to smoke outside of a Starbucks. So we really seized on the irony of that. A secondhand bullet is at least, if not more deadly than secondhand smoke.
0: They started small.
2: We didn't do a boycott per se, but we had um, skipped Starbucks Saturdays. So on Saturdays, we would ask all of our supporters to take a photo of themselves at home, say, you know, we're skipping Starbucks this Saturday because we want them to change their policy.
0: Which provoked a response from gun enthusiasts who would go into their local Starbucks armed and make their own selfies posing with their guns. Charming. There are many, many, many of these photos still floating around the internet. A clean-cut couple drinking Frappuccinos in the very recognisable corner of a Starbucks store. The woman has a large black pistol holstered on her skirt, while the man stands there with a drink in one hand and an AK-47 machine gun in the other.
2: And so we would amplify those photos as well and say, look, this is what you're welcoming into your stores. This is what you're encouraging. Starbucks, do you really want to do this?
0: By now, Mums Demand Action had Facebook pages and groups for all 50 states, as well as an overarching national page. They used the groups to organize, the pages to broadcast to news feeds, and then they had a national page to coordinate the message over the top of that. Every time they used the national page to amplify those photos, millions of people saw them. Even so, Starbucks stuck to their guns. Oh, sorry about that.
2: Their line had been, well, we follow state and local laws when it comes to um, whether or not you can carry a gun, publicly, openly carry a gun into a Starbucks. And yet, simultaneously, where tobacco was concerned, they went above and beyond the law.
0: Eventually, however, they were forced to make a choice.
2: It was basically like, which side do you want to be on? And they wanted to be on the side of moms.
0: Starbucks became a domino target. Once it fell it became easier to shift a large group of retailers.
2: Several um, restaurant chains, Chipotle, um, Sonic, Chili's, Panera Bread is another one, that all very quickly responded and said that guns were not welcome.
0: Are these victories important because they are symbolic? Or do you think they are actually having a real broader impact?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that they're both symbolic and they are... um, What we're trying to do is not just change the laws of gun laws, but also the culture in the U.S.
0: It was the only hope in the face of an ineffective political environment. Widen the fight and take whatever victories you can, because victories give confidence to your people and build your movement. It made sense to Lucy McBath.
4: Women like me, black mothers, were losing our children in the streets. Then I felt like, well, we're the ones that are going to change the culture, we're the ones that are going to spearhead the change, and we're the ones that are going to get it done,
0: because what's been done in the past apparently is not working. And their corporate victories had an impact, even while they were losing the political fight. For example, during this period in Texas, a bill passed to allow people to openly carry handguns, so the moms got organised.
2: Our moms in Texas started educating business owners and said like, hey, if you don't want people to open carry in your stores, you don't have to let that happen.
0: By the time the bill passed into law, 500 businesses had decided to prohibit open carry, thanks to organised action by mums.
2: So that's the kind of culture change that can come even in the face of you know legislative laws.
0: And seeing their fight in the grand sweep of history gave them the patience to persevere.
4: Anytime in this country we've changed a culture... It has been years and years of grassroots organizing and movement that's happened on the ground long before the policy change comes into play. The LGBTQ community, we've changed that culture. Mothers Against Drunk Drivers has changed the culture here. The tobacco industry culture has been changed. And all of those cultural shifts have been years of work on the ground, grassroots mobilizing. Mums demand action, and they're delivering it by doing
0: it themselves. And that's how it happens. So you've got to be in it for the long haul. The reason Shannon's Facebook page went viral at the beginning was because people wanted to feel like they were doing something. They wanted to change the law. But when that didn't happen, instead of giving up, they came up with innovative ways to start achieving victories so that the sense of hope didn't die. When their representatives failed them, they simply refused to take no for an answer. And instead of channelling their anger at the obvious target, the NRA and the gun lobby responsible for the terrible gun laws, they channelled their anger towards cultural change. Like a mum would tell you to do if a bully was teasing you, they sought out new friends like Starbucks to channel their energies effectively. Instead of confronting their enemy head-on, they simply went around them. Back in a moment... This podcast is supported by Australia for UNHCR. When the gunshot began,
5: I was in school. I've never had that time before. I was so afraid. The
0: teacher shouted to get out and run. That's Sandra, aged fourteen. She is a refugee from South Sudan.
3: Overnight, I found myself in a crisis. Bullets, petrol bombs, and my family were taken from me. I'm afraid now that I will never see my mother and my brother again.
0: That's F us, 13 years old, from Syria. There are now more people fleeing conflict than at any time since World War II. Nobody chooses to be a refugee. What would you pack in your one bag? Where would you run? The UN Refugee Agency needs your support to deliver aid and safeguard the rights of displaced people to live in safety. Be part of the solution. Go to unrefugees.org.au now another story born out of crisis, this time in the heart of Africa. Picture a busy shopping mall like you might find in any city in the world. This one is in Nairobi, Kenya. It's a normal Saturday morning in September, 2013. Security footage from the day shows shoppers milling around. A couple stand still. They look as though they're trying to work out which store to go into next. A woman with an orange handbag strolls into frame and suddenly looks over her shoulder and starts running. At the same time, three small kids grab onto their mother and then turn and run. They all run. We have this breaking news overseas in the capital of Kenya. Gunshots inside a shopping mall in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. And then
5: they started shooting indiscriminately.
1: Going to be fine.
0: <laughs> Today on Changemakers, I'm in downtown Nairobi, Kenya, with an extraordinary tale of what happened in the months and years after the Westgate Mall attack that left 67 people dead. It's about the workers at the mall who survived that day. Remarkably, it's an uplifting tale. Stephen Ndusi was working as a security guard at Westgate on the day of the attack. He was at the main entrance. And what equipment did you have?
6: I have my pattern, this one. No, remote pattern.
0: When did you first find out about what was happening when the, the terrorists arrived?
6: It was around 12.30 uh, when they started shooting the people on the road. I went the, inside the mall.
0: What happened next?
6: I hear something like uh, gun shooting behind uh, the others.
0: Stephen jumped over a wall to avoid being shot.
6: I walked slowly because I was injured some parts of my body.
0: Were you scared?
6: Yeah, I was scared.
0: The siege lasted 48 hours. At the end, the terrorists had killed 67 people and injured 175. Like most of the guards on duty, Stephen was armed with little more than a whistle.
6: At the time of the attack of Westgate, we are sure if the private security officer had been properly trained, and they're properly equipped, that damage could have been reduced. Those deaths could have been reduced.
0: That's Isaac Ndabwa. In 2007, he set up the Kenya National Private Security Workers Union. Problem was, Isaac's union simply wasn't big enough to demand better standards. A few hundred members at most. So at the beginning of 2013, months before the Westgate Mall attacks, Isaac reached out to Uni, a kind of global union based in Geneva. That's where Nigel Flanagan came on the scene.
3: 12-hour shifts, six days a week, no uniforms, no training, no safety, terrible wages. And then the other thing was that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiny security firms run by a guy who's an ex-policeman, run by a guy who's owed a favour, run by somebody from a criminal with criminal connections. And so the whole industry was kind of cowboy.
0: Nigel helped Isaac get some funding to pay for four motorbikes to organise more members. In July of that year, after training the organisers, the union started a big organising drive. Nigel suggested a classic tactic. Start by trying to unionise the company with the highest standards. They targeted an international logistics firm called G4S.
6: It has better rules, it has better training, it's a global entity so when G4S changes, then you can trust me that the other small companies in Kenya will also follow
0: the trend. Four motorbikes to organise one of the largest industries in a country of 46 million people, but you've got to start somewhere, right? I hitched a ride on the back of a union motorbike. Let's just say, on Kenya's potholed roads, it was perilous.
3: We have
1: started already. Now you are ready to go. Me? Uh, we are now ready to go to Westgate, as from here, Concord Hotel, along Parklands Road.
0: Okay, I'll be brave. We'll get on. Oh, my God. Okay, Okay. give me a sec. I've got to get a helmet on. Right from the word go, one of the problems the four organisers faced was finding the right people inside the company to talk to. The weird thing is, the same was true for the workers inside the company. They didn't know how to contact their union. Take, for instance, Gladys Marwindi. One day, Gladys was at work at G4S. She had the radio on and she heard a union official talking about the new organising initiative.
5: And when they were explaining what a union is, we took their numbers because they gave their numbers into the
0: radio station. So... On, on, On Kenyan radio? Yeah. Wow. So you first heard about the union on the radio? Yeah. And they gave you their phone number on the radio? On the radio. And you wrote it down and gave them a call? Sure. Isaac had no idea what had fallen into his lap. The four organisers that Isaac and Nigel had employed didn't understand the issues at G4S as well as Gladys did. It wasn't the organisers' fault. It was because she worked there and they didn't. It was the inn the union desperately needed. And what was the actual issue at the workplace that got you angry initially? Unfair domination. At any moment, Gladys's boss could call her in and sack her for no reason at all. This was one of the reasons workers like Gladys were coming out of the woodwork. The union leaders thought, OK, it'll take two years to get enough G4S workers to force the company to recognise our union. Then three months into the campaign... The attack on Westgate Mall. One of the security guards that day was Maurice Ombissa, Morris's shift that day started at 6 a.m. He got up at five and got dressed. Because he was a patroller, he hadn't been given a full uniform. Instead, he wore a check shirt. And as he left, he said goodbye to his wife, Eunice. Westgate Moor was 10 kilometres away from his home, so Morris caught a matatu, a kind of public minibus, to get there. When the attackers went through the first gate, they refused to be searched by the guards who were there. Morris came out to see what was going on. That's when he was killed.
3: He was unarmed, badly trained, didn't have a proper uniform.
0: Suddenly, security in Kenya took on a national significance. Four motorbikes felt pretty inadequate to organise the industry that was at the front line of stopping terrorism.
3: And the guy who stood with him was expected to be back at work the next week. So that one guy, really, his situation dramatically changed the atmosphere.
0: People were angry. So the union decided to tear up the plan it had just started.
6: So we said we need to fight and have the sector properly regulated. The private security must be properly armed, equipped to do that job.
0: Dorothy Chikane was one of the workers who'd gone with Gladys to meet the union. Initially, she was surprised that a union for guards was even possible, given how unwieldy the industry was. Lots of different companies, all with different conditions.
1: But we did not know that... Uh, security workers can have a union.
0: In some ways, this naivety, born of a lack of experience, was to serve the union well for the campaign. The fact that they didn't know what a union was supposed to do was a strength. The idea was bold.
3: Now, I must emphasise, this, this was their big idea. Was instead of trying to organise in a particular company, they were trying to organise all security guards, but they would organise them on, around a the campaign to force the government to introduce some kind of statutory responsibility for the government to inspect and monitor security companies.
0: Nigel was somewhat sceptical.
3: Usually, we would say, that's not a good idea. You you don't have the resources for that.
0: Nevertheless, it was clear in the aftermath of Westgate something had to change.
3: In a change of strategy, we said, right, we're going to have to tell the four organisers it's not working. It wasn't growing quickly enough.
0: Instead of using paid organisers, they enlisted volunteer shop stewards like Gladys and Dorothy to recruit guards to this much bigger, bolder idea.
3: They had something like 140 activists and we used it to pay their travel so they could move around the country signing people up rather than four people trying to do it as a full-time job. Suddenly we went from being four people working really hard and getting frustrated because it wasn't working to funding all these activists and growing the network week by week so that they then started signing up thousands and thousands of workers.
0: The volunteers channeled their anger at Westgate into action.
3: The union used that issue really, really well to get out their message. Kenya's a country where there is quite a high level of terrorist threat. And I do think without the Westgate tragedy, we might have persisted with that old failing strategy for quite a lot longer. So they definitely had an impact.
0: Under G4S's company policy, they had to convince half the workers that a union was a good idea before they would be recognised by the company. The results were, well, let's find out from Gladys. Within three weeks, we had around 5,000 employees in the union. 5,000 people in three weeks. Unbelievable. Somehow Gladys manages to be modest about that.
5: And that was not all because our company has very many employees.
0: In fact, it was true. They needed 3,000 more to get it past 50%. So they kept going. And within another one month, we had those people. So a union of a few hundred grew to 8,000 new members in less than two months. So
5: the union wrote a letter to their company and they
0: agreed. They had no option. But the mystery here is, how did they do it? That's the fastest union growth I have ever heard. They employed some clever tactics. They campaigned for workers to be trained. Then they used the new training centres as a site to recruit. Professionalising the workers became the key to also getting them unionised. And they used a mix of new and old technologies. They used mobile phones to stay in contact across their growing network, But they also trained shop stewards to maintain face-to-face contact with their growing membership. The face-to-face contact was especially important. Just ask Thomas Kiptu, the union's organising director. How important is face-to-face for building trust with the security workers?
1: Yeah, it builds more trust because you talk to him today and tomorrow when he finds another different message, he will just call you and you will just go there and talk to him.
0: The union also took advantage of the fact that security officers were much easier to spot when they were on duty in their uniforms.
1: To get them, is easier to get them when they're on duty.
0: So by timing their efforts at a change of shifts, they could organise double the workers, those going into work and those knocking off for the day. Within a year, the union had grown from a few hundred to 16,000. One thing I noticed when we started doing this story is that the shop stewards at the pointy end of this strategy all seemed to be women. Initially, Nigel had thought it would be hard to recruit any women to the union.
3: If we found one woman, our attitude was going to be, oh, my God, you know, we were wrong. We were totally wrong.
0: Instead, the opposite was true.
3: There's very few security guard supervisors who were women. But what we found was that the issues about training and wages, and a uniform, and time away from work, and the length of shifts, all came under the heading of what you might have called women's issues.
1: Did not like somebody who is not married to have kids? He wanted to see that you are married. When you are married, you take the marriage certificate. This is the father of my kid. So she wanted straightforward ladies. Did that make you angry? Yes. To stop this, we need to join the union also as ladies.
0: Just like pretty much everywhere else in the world, women who worked as security guards were also the primary caregivers and, frankly, did most of the housework. For me, I'm a security guard, I'm a mother, and I'm a union
1: official. So this one is very hard to manage, but I try it at most because I wake up at around 4.20 a.m., So from there, I start by making tea. I make sure the breakfast is okay. I'm at my place of work, 5.40. So coming six exactly, I have already put on my uniforms. I'm ready to work.
0: Women had too much on their plate to put up with the cowboy conditions that were endemic in the industry.
5: In security industries, ladies suffer. The security officers who are ladies suffer in their assignments. And that is why it was important, and it is important even right now, for a lady to organize. Because for a man to organize, will organize normally. He won't see what... You know, being a lady, you will understand what a woman goes through at work. Simply because men doesn't have many challenges at work. But for a lady, remember we have maternity.
3: Consequently... What we found was there was a disproportionate number of women becoming union activists.
0: A year after Westgate, 2014, with 16,000 members, the union decided it was finally big enough to throw its weight around. Gladys, Dorothy, Isaac and their fellow security officers decided to march on Parliament and demand the government pass a private member's bill to regulate the entire security industry in Kenya. They held a rally in downtown Nairobi.
5: We came to Wurupak. There is a place called Wurupak in Nairobi where people gather when there is a meeting.
0: When we gathered there, very many of us with uniforms. They decided to march in their uniforms. And how did you feel on that day, marching in your uniform to Parliament House? It was a bit nervous,
5: simply because maybe you could be terminated from our work.
1: We were almost 500 people, even more than that. So we were so many, we were more than 500 by that time. The
0: march brought downtown Nairobi to a halt. What we were saying, private bill, private bill, private bill. We want private bill through.
3: That was clear physical evidence of mobilisation. The workers were involved in the campaign. It was their campaign. This was not a professional lobbying operation. This is workers coming out and saying, we won't change. And that was a real high. That whole day was just incredible to me.
0: The result? Eventually, after more organising, more lobbying and plenty of parliamentary procedure, the bill passed into law in May 2016.
1: Your boss cannot just wake up one morning and tell you, she can be dismissed. will think twice, what will union tell
0: me? The union's membership kept growing so that today it's almost 50,000 people strong. The bill enshrines minimum standards of training and salaries across the industry and regulation of everything from firearm use to dismissal procedures. The consequence has had a profound impact on workers' lives, both at work and home. You feel
1: you are somewhere safe. You are safe always whenever you work. You are safe. Your job is safe. Yourself, yourself.
0: While the companies they worked for provided security to the public, now the union had the power to provide them with a sense of security for themselves. But most importantly, security guards are no longer taken for granted. The lesson of Westgate is not that terrible things happen for a reason, but that a terrible thing happened and the union gave it a reason. And that's the same with Sandy Hook. Out of tragedy came something new and enduring. In both stories, crisis created an environment where radical change felt necessary. People had nothing to lose when they were responding to the threat of their husbands dying on the front line or their children dying because of how loud the music was in their car. And out of each crisis came radically innovative tactics and fueled a creative approach to the strategy. But then it was more. In Kenya, the new, more open strategy of supporting union stewards to do the organising opened up the union to a set of voices that hadn't been heard before, the women security guards. And in the US, the failure of representative politics forced the mums to forge new allies. People like Gladys and Dorothy weren't wallflowers. They were already masters of balancing work and looking after their kids. They had different ways of organising. And they didn't see the obstacles to organising that more experienced people saw. And as a result, they grew their union far faster than anyone thought possible. In many organisations, women don't get to play a leadership role. But in these ones, they did. And what a difference.
4: And who better to do that than a mother who's protecting the preservation of her own generations?
0: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. It's produced by Carolyn Pedgram and Catherine Franey. Written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie, and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Binn and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. They are a global learning and collaboration network powering the future of social change campaigns. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.